Hi everyone, welcome back to Daily Gospel Exegesis Podcast. Our goal here is to do a verse-by-verse exegesis of the scriptures to help you really understand the literal sense of scripture. And we're looking today at a very well-known passage, but quite a controversial one in many ways, and I think you might be surprised uh, about the different ways that this can be interpreted and, and perhaps its implications. So, Let's have a look at it. It's Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. Jesus said to his disciples, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, escorted by all the angels, then he will take his seat on his throne of glory. All the angels will be assembled before him, and he will separate men one from another, as the shepherd separates sheep from goats. He will place the sheep on his right hand and goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you whom my father has blessed, take for your heritage the kingdom prepared for you since the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you made me welcome. Naked, and you clothed me. Sick, and you visited me. In prison, and you came to see me. Then the virtuous, the virtuous will say to him in reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and make you welcome, naked and clothe you, sick or in prison and go see you? And the king will answer, I tell you solemnly, in so far as you did this to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. Next he will say to those on his left hand, Go away from me with your curse upon you, to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you never gave me food. I was thirsty and you never gave me anything to drink. I was a stranger and you never made me welcome. Naked and you never clothed me. Sick and in prison and you never visited me. Then it will be their turn to ask, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, a stranger or naked, sick or in prison, and did not come to your help? Then he will answer, I tell you solemnly, in so far as you neglected to do this to one of the least of these, you neglected to do it to me. And they will go away to eternal punishment, and the virtuous to eternal life. So a really interesting parable, a very confronting parable, the parable of the sheep and the goats. And you might have heard me do an exegesis on this passage before, possibly. And I've actually revised my views slightly on the best way to understand this, which is really what we should do if we want to be serious about studying the Bible. We should be open to correcting our views uh, and changing them if they're not quite correct. And I think that the interpretation that I'll offer here makes a little more sense of the text. So let's start by thinking about the context. Jesus has just been speaking, he's been giving an extended discourse about the coming of the Son of Man. So he's had a whole series of parables about the coming of the Son of Man. He's told them the signs to watch out for that will accompany the coming of the Son of Man. And he's urged his disciples to be watchful and ready, like the parable of the ten virgins. He's just given that. So everything he's said so far to his disciples has been about the necessity of being watchful and ready. And he's told them the Son of Man could return at any time. So he's been talking about the need for watchfulness before he comes. And now what he's going to do is he's going to talk about what will actually happen 
when he does come? What is that going to look like? That's what the parable of the sheep and the goats tells us. Now, to understand this, firstly, we need to understand the word coming in Greek. So, because this parable is about the coming of the Son of Man. The word coming in Greek is parousia, and that literally means presence, but it can also mean appearing or visitation. It's used a lot in the Bible, and particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, and 20 times total in the New Testament. We know from other Greek literature that parousia usually means uh, describes a visitation of a king to a city he has previously conquered. So the visitation of a king to a city that he's already conquered. So in that sense, it presumes a period of absence before the king's return. The Bible uses it in really similar ways. If you look at Judges and Second Maccabees, and more importantly, it uses that word parousia to describe the coming of Jesus Christ, who his coming of judgment, basically, who's going to bring judgment upon his enemies when he returns to his territory. And also when he comes, there will be an element of judgment, but he'll also rescue his faithful disciples. And we see both of these in this parable. So the word parousia or coming, it can refer to two different things in the gospels in terms of Jesus. It can refer to what's often called his middle coming, which is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That was one coming of Jesus. Or it can refer to his second coming at the end of time, which hasn't happened yet. The text we're about to hear, the parable of the sheep and the goats, has been taken both ways amongst scholars. It's highly debated. Some scholars think that Jesus in this parable is talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. It's talking about the judgment that will occur when Jesus comes in 70 AD to judge the Jewish people in 70 AD. Or other scholars think it's talking about the second coming which hasn't happened yet. It's talking about the final judgment when God will judge whether people are going to go into heaven or hell for all eternity. So the final judgment day. Traditionally, most people in the church have seen this as a description of the second coming. But there are some scholars who think it's about 70 AD, and you might see that in some commentaries. Now, my view on this is that this is primarily talking about the second coming, but this needs a bit of nuance. In the context of the other parables, which has come just before this, so he's just told the parable of the two servants, the parable of the bridesmaids, the parable of the talents, that's all in chapter 24 or 25. Who's Jesus' primary audience here? I think this is the key that will help us understand the parable. Let's keep this in mind. Jesus has just been speaking those other parables to the apostles primarily, and he's been reminding the apostles of the duties he's given them to fulfill while he's away. And he's basically been saying to them in these parables, you need to look after the rest of the Christian flock. Now, in this parable, the parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus is going to say, you need to look after the least of my brethren. Remember that phrase, if you do something for the least of my brethren, you do it to me. Now, given that, the phrase the least of my brethren probably means Christians in particular. His brethren are Christians. And so, If we understand Jesus continuing to speak to the apostles here, what he's basically saying to the apostles is on judgment day, you'll be held accountable for how you treated Christians because they're going to be the leaders of the church. These are what we're going to see here in the parable of the sheep and the goats, hungry and you gave me drink, etc. In reference to the least of my brethren, these are the things the apostles will be held accountable for on judgment day. Jesus is going to say to the apostles Uh, how did you treat other Christians? Did you visit them when they were in prison? Did you feed them when they were hungry? So this is 
primarily aimed at the apostles in terms of the way they need to treat other Christians as part of their leadership. This makes good sense of the parable, I think, because it makes best sense of his audience. Here, Jesus is primarily speaking to the apostles and the other leading disciples who are going to be charged with looking after his growing church. So the scene, what we're going to see here is basically what Judgment Day will look like for the Apostles. So it really is a scene of the Second Coming. It's what the Second Coming is going to look like and what Judgment Day is going to look like for the Apostles. These are the things that they will be held accountable for. I think that makes the best sense of the scene. It's referring to the final judgment, which is still in our future. It's what... what but what's the final judgment is going to look like from the perspective of the apostles. So I think this parable is not referring to 70 AD at all. And it means that this parable can still have some application to us because it's about the second coming in the future. The application to us would be, we need to do the loving works that Jesus expects of us to those he's placed in our care. So he's speaking primarily to the apostles. He's telling them they need to look after the Christians he's placed in their care. But we're going to be held accountable on Judgment Day for a similar kind of thing, for how we treated the people God has placed in our care, particularly other Christians. That still applies here. Even if we're not leaders of the church, you can expect that on Judgment Day, God will be uh, looking at similar things in terms of the way we treated other people. So in that sense, the parable still certainly applies to us. Now, as we'll see, the parable says that in order to get into heaven on Judgment Day, Jesus and God will be looking to make sure that you haven't just vaguely followed Jesus or claim that you follow Jesus. We'll see some people in the parable who claim that they do, but not really. What does it take to get into heaven? As it is made clear throughout the entire Gospel of Matthew and the other Gospels, is to get into heaven, you need to do the Father's will, which means following the love commandments. So this parable is a specific application of what the apostles are called to do. What are the apostles asked to do in terms of following God's will? They, in particular, are called to look after God's flock. If you can keep that perspective in mind, in uh, when we read through the parable, it will make a lot more sense. So envision this as this is really what Judgment Day is going to look like, but what it's going to look like from the perspective of the apostles on Judgment Day. These are things that Jesus and God will say to the apostles primarily on Judgment Day. So let's start at verse 31. Now, our lectionary here says, Jesus said to his disciples. That's not actually in the original, but it's placed here in the lectionary to make it a bit clearer. He is speaking to his disciples at this point. So it's quite appropriate to say, Jesus said to his disciples. And now he's going to use a term, son of man. Now, that was a common title in the time of Jesus for the Messiah. And it particularly seems to uh, be a reference to the book of Daniel. There's a figure there in the book of Daniel called the Son of Man, who basically seems to be the Messiah, the heavenly Messiah. Jesus prefers to refer to himself by the title Son of Man. It's what he calls himself as Messiah, and that's how they would have understood the term. And here's what he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Now, in Daniel chapter 9, the Son of Man does come in his glory. The, Daniel has a vision of the Messiah coming in his glory, and in that scene, what actually happens is the Son of Man, this messianic figure, comes on the clouds of heaven in glory to be presented to the Father, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. And then he says, escorted by all the angels. So it's kind of like a coronation ceremony in heaven. It's a really interesting image, isn't it? Escorted by the angels. The, the Messiah comes to the Father's throne, escorted by the angels. So it's like a coronation ceremony in heaven. 
Then he would take his seat on his throne of glory. So this is kind of depicted as the time when the kingship of the Messiah becomes obvious for all people. He would take his seat on the throne of glory. It's the moment that the Messiah receives his throne. And this can be understood different ways. There is a sense in which this happens in 70 AD, but obviously it can also be understood as the time when Jesus is finally crowned as victorious at the end of the age when the kingdom of God is ushered in. And that seems to be what's in view here uh, because we don't often see the description being escorted by the angels. That seems to be reserved for the second coming, not so much for 70 AD. So we're talking here about the second coming when the Messiah takes his seat in heaven next to the Father. Jesus here says, all the nations. Now that can be translated as all races, all races, all peoples. Probably here it means Gentiles, all the people, including Jews as well, but as including Gentiles. So all the nations on Judgment Day will be assembled before him. So it's kind of like a heavenly royal court, isn't it? They're all, all the nations, all the peoples on Judgment Day are going to be assembled before the Messiah and his throne. And although there's probably imagery here, we can it probably is quite literal. Judgment Day may look something like this. It's kind of like a courtroom thing with Jesus on his throne as the Messiah and God there as well, and people being assembled before him. There's probably imagery here, but we should see it as as kind of a literal thing that will happen something like this. And then Jesus says this, He will separate men one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Who's the he here? It's the Son of Man. Jesus himself will be the one that separates people on Judgment Day. And he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. Now, in that culture, sheep and goats grazed together in the same paddocks and they looked very similar. So it wasn't always obvious, at least from a distance, it wasn't obvious uh, which ones were sheep and which ones were goats. That's the point here. Jesus is going to separate those who are genuine, if you like, from those who are not genuine. It actually took an expert, a shepherd basically, to separate each animal, to scrutinize and work out, is it a sheep or is it a goat? That you'd take an expert. And then what he would t- the shepherd would literally do this in Jesus' culture. Once he'd worked out which were the sheep, which were the goats, he would place sheep on one side, goats on the other side. This is a normal part of a shepherd's job to work out which is which. Jesus says that's what he will do as on Judgment Day as the Messiah. The idea is on Judgment Day, there'll be a whole lot of people that look the same externally from a distance, but Jesus will judge them based on whether they have performed certain works, whether they have done God's will or not. Basically, whether they're genuine Christians or not will be what Jesus determines. So it's interesting how they're kind of blending royal court imagery with shepherd imagery. They're both being combined beautifully into one single parable. It says here in verse 33, he will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. So Jesus the Messiah is going to divide people into two categories. Now, in that culture and in ancient cultures in general, the right hand of the king represented the good, fortunate or honourable place and the left represented the dishonourable place. So to be put on the right hand of the king, that will be what you want. That's a good thing. To be on the left hand of the king means you have less honour. You're actually quite dishonourable. And ancient cultures very much focused on this idea of the right hand being the strong hand. You can see that imagery in the Old Testament as well. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, notice he's called king now. So it's uh, the king is the language that's being used here for the messianic son of man. So Jesus, in this image here of judgment day, Jesus will address the good group, those on his right, and he'll say, come you whom my father has blessed. 
Now, why is this group blessed? It's because of what they're about to see receive. Blessed means fortunate. This group is fortunate because of what's about to happen to them. Take for your heritage the kingdom prepared for you. Notice what they get. They get a kingdom. This is referring to the final manifestation of the kingdom of God. Only on judgment day do God's people receive a kingdom. So this has to be talking about the second coming. Only those who do the will of the Father can enter the new heaven and the new earth, can enter the final version of the kingdom of God. Only those who've done the will of the Father in their lifetime can inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what he says here. Take for your heritage the kingdom prepared for you. That's their reward. And in fact, he says, prepared for you since the foundation of the world. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? God has been preparing a true people for himself and a true kingdom for his people throughout all of history. That's the goal of history. God is trying to bring or to make a kingdom of people. That's his goal. Now Jesus puts in this word for, come inherit the place prepared for you since the foundation of the world for. So that means because. So Jesus is about to explain why this group of people is allowed to enter the kingdom and the other group isn't. And we should pay attention to this. This is an image of judgment day and Jesus is going to tell us what allowed one group to enter the kingdom and what allowed the other group to be put on the left hand of the king. So here's what he says in verse 35. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you made me welcome. Naked and you clothed me. Sick and you visited me. In prison and you came to see me. Now, Jesus himself was not many of these things in his lifetime. He was some of them, but he wasn't really many of them. Jesus is using this as a metaphor for something else, which he's about to explain. So when he says, I was hungry and you gave me food, Jesus here talking from the throne, he's not actually referring to himself. And that's what his audiences would be confused about. They're going to be saying, well, when did we do those things for you? So that's what they say. Lord, in chapter, in verse 37, they say to Jesus in the parable or the Messiah in the parable, when do we do these things for you? So remember what's in this list here. Hungry, giving him food when he's hungry, giving him drink when he's thirsty, made me welcome when I was a stranger, naked and you clothed me, sick and you visited me in prison and you came to see me. So it's all these good acts that apparently the people on the right have done for the Messiah. They're surprised. Lord, when do we do these things for you? They've been selfless. This must be people who've selflessly been giving of themselves to people, but they never really realized that in a sense they were doing it for Jesus. And then they list all the things. They say, when did we see you a stranger and make you welcome? When did we see you naked and clothe you? And they, they list all of them. And then in verse 40, the king replies. Notice he's called the king now. As soon as the son of man sits on his throne, he has the right to be called king. He says, I tell you solemnly. So this is it's an important statement that's about to be said. Insofar as you did this to, the, to one of the least of these brothers of mine, or some translations call this group my brethren, when you did this to my brethren. Now, who is this group? This is the key question. Who are these brothers of the Messiah that Jesus is talking about in the parable? There's different views about it. I think clearly the best view here is that it's Christians. And in particular, remember, this is a vision primarily referring to how the apostles are going to be judged. So it's I think here when it says my brethren, Jesus saying my brethren, it means Christians in the first centuries. These are people who really struggled in the first century. They faced a lot of hardships when they were preaching the gospel. It was very difficult to be a Christian. Many of them were beaten, thrown in prison. Many of them went hungry and thirsty. They were outcasts in society because they were Christian. So I think here when he, Jesus says my brethren, he's really referring to Christians. 
those who follow Jesus. And remember earlier in the Gospels, Jesus actually basically said, who are my real brethren? Who are my real brothers and sisters? It's those who follow the will of God. So that would certainly fit with what Jesus has said earlier in the Gospels about who his brethren are. It's those who follow the will of God. It's Christians, basically. Some Catholics and some Christians have taken, when Jesus says, my brethren, they think he means needy people in society in general. And that could apply. We could extend it out that way. But I think on the literal sense, we're talking here primarily, remember, he's speaking to the apostles. How are they going to be judged? Based on how well they led and they shepherded uh, the Christians in the first century. And Jesus here, or the Messiah in the parable, in this parable, literally says, I tell you solemnly, insofar as you did this to one of the least of these brothers of mine, what does it mean to be the least? Well, it'd have to be least important person from the brethren. Who would be the least important brethren? Probably the most insignificant Christian. I think that that would be a legitimate way of interpreting it. The one who is not particularly high ranking in the church. It's the least significant Christian. That would be uh, one way of looking at this. He says, when you do it to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. So the teaching here is that the apostles and other Christians, when they look after the Christian flock and they uh, go visit Christians in prison. They they feed Christians who are hungry. They kind of, when they do that to a Christian, they do it by extension to Jesus. If you help a Christian, you're helping Christ. So it's almost this imagery of the body of Christ here earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is the head and Christians are the body. So when you do something to the body, you're actually doing it to the head as well. That seems to be what he's saying. The other interpretation, if you're going to say that his brethren means Uh, the downtrodden in society. Well, then in this case, Jesus is saying that he's mysteriously present in every downtrodden person in society. And perhaps that is the right interpretation. So Jesus here has listed six good works that his apostles particularly, but also by extension, all Christians are expected to do if they want to get into heaven. There's six things that the apostles are judged on on judgment day. And these have come to be known as the corporal works of mercy. Here's what they are, feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, welcoming strangers, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, visiting the imprisoned. These are acts that Jesus wants people to do, and it's what people will be judged on Judgment Day, particularly the apostles, in terms of how well did they look after uh, the followers of Jesus. Verse 41, so he now turns to the other group, so those on his left hand, that's these who did not do those six corporal works, to the least of Jesus' brethren. It's those who did not look after uh, the Christians very well. Now, remember, in a couple of the earlier parables, there's been this idea of the faithful and the unfaithful steward. And we talked about how probably means a Christian who does, uh, an apostle who does his job well gets rewarded, but an apostle who slacks off and doesn't look after Christians well, he goes to hell. That's what the other earlier parables have said. I think this parable is basically going to say the same thing because he's just talked about the rewards that a good Christian apostle will get if he looks after the flock well, that's those on his right hand. Now he's going to turn to the left hand and notice what he says here. So he says to those on his left hand, go away from me with your curse upon you. So there's this really strong language here early on. So go away from me. King Jesus is banishing them from the throne room. That's the image here. These people are being cast out of the throne room with your curse upon you. So he's actually pronouncing a curse on them. Very powerful imagery here. Jesus on Judgment Day is going to pronounce a curse on those who did not do his will. Clearly, this is a form of punishment. We can't escape this. 
in the parable, the image is of the Messiah casting people out of the throne room and putting a curse on them. We can't avoid this imagery. And he says, go away from me with your curse upon you to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So we learn from this that this eternal fire was originally meant for the devil and his angels. It wasn't originally made for humans. The original purpose of hell was for the devil, not for people. God wants people to come to heaven. It wasn't, hell was not originally supposed to be for people. So he sends them to the eternal fire. And the Greek there is Gehenna, which is Jesus' word for hell. This is where all evil people will be sent on the final judgment day at the end of time. Clearly, this has to be referring to the last judgment. And the image here is of those who get sent to hell. And why? Jesus now tells us why this group gets sent to hell. Verse 42, go away from me. For I was hungry and you never gave me food. I was thirsty and you never gave me anything to drink. I was a stranger and you never made me welcome. Naked and you never clothed me. Sick and in prison and you never visited me. And then, so that's in verse 42. So the teaching here is that this group saw the need of Jesus. And as we'll see, what he really means is Jesus' brethren. But they didn't do anything about it. This is the clear, this is the issue. These are apostles or perhaps Christian leaders who knew they saw a need of the body of Christ. They saw that Christians were in need, but they didn't do anything. So you could call these sins of omission, which is interesting. These people end up in hell for sins of omission, things that they should have done, but they didn't. Those count as sins as well. But this group on the left is confused. They say, when did we not do these things to you? This is Jesus' answer to the group on his left. Insofar as you neglected to do it to the least of these, you neglected to do it to me. So this is a sin of neglect. They failed to do these corporal works of mercy for the brethren. And therefore, by extension, they fail to do it to Jesus. They fail to serve Jesus well. Very scary words. We don't want to be in this group that failed to treat Christians as Jesus wanted us to. Or even by extension, we don't want to be people that failed to fulfill what God, what Jesus expected us to do. So in verse 46, what happens to them? Remember, this is a group probably thinking here of Christian apostles, Christian leaders who knew what they were supposed to do, who had responsibilities from Jesus, but they neglected those responsibilities. It's primarily thinking of Christian leaders who know what they're supposed to do, but they don't do it. But by extension, it can apply to all Christians who know what they're supposed to do and they don't do it. What happens, verse 46, they will go away into eternal punishment. Notice this, we have here Christians, basically Christians who knew what they were supposed to do, but they didn't do it, they end up in hell. A lot of uh, Christian denominations struggle with this idea that there can be Christians in hell, but it's the clear teaching of Jesus, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, that people who know what they're supposed to do, who know God's will, but they refuse to do it, they end up in hell. Remember, this is similar to what Jesus said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, not just anyone who says, Lord, Lord, will get into the kingdom of heaven. It's those who do the will of God who enter into the kingdom of heaven. And here, the will of God for these people, for the Christian leaders, is to look after the flock, to do the corporal works of mercy. So they go to hell, this group on the left, for all eternity, because they fail to do the good works that were expected of them. Scary stuff. It's certainly one of the most scariest parables And then he just finishes. He summarizes what's just happened. He says, They will go away to eternal punishment 
and the virtuous to eternal life, or you can translate that the righteous, and the righteous are the ones who do what God's will is. They go to eternal life. They go to heaven for all eternity because they did the good works that were expected of them. This is a parable that teaches us that on judgment day, people are going to be judged based on what they did, not what they believed, but rather did they do God's will. That's the meaning of the parable. It's hard to avoid that. So in that sense, I think that uh, Catholics have done a better job at focusing on this parable and understanding this parable than other Christians have, because Catholics understand that uh, doing good works is part of being a Christian. And in fact, it's required in order to uh, in order to maintain your salvation and to end up in the final kingdom of God. So that is the end of Matthew chapter 25. And the lectionary never reads the first part of Matthew chapter 26, because from Matthew chapter 26 on, it begins the narrative of the plot to kill Jesus. So the first part of Matthew chapter 26 is about the leaders plotting to kill Jesus. And then we have the anointing of Jesus at Bethany. We'll cover that first part of Matthew 26 as a bonus episode of the podcast, because you won't hear it at Mass. But you can hear the next section of Matthew 26, so verses 14 to 25. You can hear that on Wednesday of Holy Week. So what I've just offered there is uh, an analysis, an exegesis of the literal sense of the parable. Obviously, there's more you could say about it, particularly the importance of the corporal works of mercy. But we've tried to do a verse-by-verse exegesis here. I've engaged with some scholarship to try and get at what Jesus probably meant and how we should understand the parable. So um, I hope you found that useful. Let's now turn to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. There's, as you'd expect, a whole lot of places where the parable of the sheep and the goats gets referenced. So I just want to read out a few of these, but I'll include as many of these as I can in the show notes as well. Paragraph 1033 and 1034. This is about eternal life. Our Lord warns us that we shall be separated from him if we fail to meet the serious needs of the poor and the little ones who are his brethren. Jesus often speaks of Gehenna, of the unquenchable fire, reserved for those who to the end of their lives refuse to believe and be converted, where both soul and body can be lost. Jesus solemnly proclaims that he will send his angels and they will gather all evildoers and throw them into the furnace of fire, and that he will pronounce the condemnation, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. So strong language there in the Catechism about... If we fail to meet the serious needs of the poor, who are his brethren, then we can end up in Gehenna. That's the teaching of this paragraph. Paragraph 2447, this is about love for the poor. The works of mercy are charitable actions by which we come to the aid of our neighbor in his spiritual and bodily necessities. Instructing, advising, consoling, comforting are spiritual works of mercy as are forgiving and bearing wrongs patiently. The corporal works of mercy consist especially in feeding the hungry, sheltering the homeless, clothing the naked, visiting the sick and imprisoned, and burying the dead. So there's a list there of the corporal works of mercy, most of which come straight out of this passage. We have then paragraph 2831. There's a quick reference to it in the section on give us this day our daily bread, which is about our responsibility towards our brethren. Paragraph 2443 is about love for the poor. And there's a reference here to angels as well. Paragraph 671. This is in the section about how Christ is king until all things are subjected to him. Though already present in his church, Christ's reign is nevertheless yet to be fulfilled with power and great glory by the king's return to earth. So here is the clear Catholic teaching that one day Christ will return to earth. And at that point, 
his reign will be fulfilled completely, as we see in the judgment in this parable. Paragraph 678 and 679 is about Judgment Day. Following the footsteps of the prophets and John the Baptist, Jesus announced the judgment of the last day in his preaching. Then will the conduct of each one and the secrets of hearts be brought to light. Then will the culpable unbelief that countered the offer of God's grace as nothing be condemned. Our attitude to our neighbor will disclose acceptance or refusal of grace and divine love. On the last day, Jesus will say, Truly I say to you, you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. By rejecting grace in this life, one already judges oneself, receives according to one's works, and can even condemn oneself for all eternity by rejecting the spirit of love. And then a similar theme, paragraph 1038. Then Christ will come in his glory and all the angels with him. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep at his right hand, but the goats at his left. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So that paragraph there was literally just a quote, a long quote from the parable of the sheep and the goats. The church, the Catholic church, sees this as a very good image of what the last judgment is going to look like. And then paragraph 1932, this is the last one we'll look at. This is about respect for the human person. The duty of making oneself a neighbor to others and actively serving them becomes even more urgent when it involves the disadvantaged in whatever area this may be. As you did it to the least, one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So again there, there's a quote from the parable about um, the necessity for Christians to respect human persons, particularly the, dis- the disadvantaged. So we've looked at a very challenging text today, the parable of the sheep and the goats, one that's often talked about, but not really analyzed in depth. And I hope you've appreciated the way that we've done a verse by verse exegesis on this text. It's certainly one of the texts that for me uh, made me rethink salvation theology and eventually uh, was one of the key texts that made me eventually turn to the Catholic Church from the Protestant faith. So if you've appreciated this uh, particular exegesis, if you've thought it's been insightful, please share it with others in your life so that all of us, all Christians, all Catholics can get to know the word of God better and to love and serve God better. We'll continue to look at the Gospels in the coming days. Thank you.